up God's Word with you, and so I would invite you to do that now. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and as you were doing so, I would invite you once again to stand this morning for the reading of God's Holy Word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to read in your hearing, beginning in verse 8 through verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. I don't know about you guys, but for me, going out to a restaurant often sort of feels like rolling the dice. And that's because I'm, I'm always wondering, how, how is the food going to be? And, and what sort of environment is it going to be like? I, I know that I have gotten a little bit older because the first thoughts that come to my mind usually revolve around, are the lights going to be so low I can't see? And is the music going to be so loud I can't hear? Those are the things that I think about when going out to a restaurant. And then there's this. What about the service? It's been my experience, and perhaps you agree, good service is critical. It really can make or break the evening. If the food is wonderful, but the service is awful, it can ruin your night, can't you? And I would also say that it's been my experience that even if the food is subpar, but the service is stellar, that it can actually be still a very enjoyable evening. And so my point in all of this, church, is is that we recognize that service is important. And I want to submit to you that that is true, not just when you go out for dinner with your family or friends, but it is also even more true when it comes to the life of the church. Now, as we come to the passage that is in front of us this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we come to a section that is giving us instruction regarding deacons. You see the word there in verse 8, right? The the word deacon. Do, Do you know what that word means? It simply means servant. And, and deacons of the church, or just more literally, the servants of the church, they are massively important for the health and life of the church. Now, you will remember we are currently walking through Paul's first letter to Timothy, and ever since verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul has been laboring to show us how the church should look how it is to be structured and organized, the the various parts in the church and what they do. And this has been quite clearly laid out for us here in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul has laid out for us who the leaders are in the church. That's the elders. 
And this morning, as we look at verses 8 through 13, we're going to see who the servants of the church are. And that, again, is the deacons. We're going to do this by specifically looking at the reality of deacons, the requirements for deacons, the role of deacons, and the reward for deacons. So again, if you're one of those note-takers, reality, requirements, role, and reward. That's sort of an idea of where we're going. Now, when it comes to the reality of deacons, we need to clearly establish this fact, okay? The church should have deacons. This is what the New Testament teaches, and it teaches it unequivocally. It is clearly addressed for us here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then over in Philippians 1.1, Paul specifically mentions that as the recipients of his letter, you have both elders and deacons. So deacons are a reality. To which you might think to yourself, this sort of goes without saying, doesn't it? Do we really need to establish the reality of deacons? And I want to tell you that the answer is a resounding yes. And that is because there are scores and scores of churches who do not actually recognize the office of deacons, right? They, they just plain don't have them. Or you have other churches that do have deacons, but they don't actually function as deacons. It's unfortunate that I have to say this, but you usually see this in a lot of Baptist churches. In, in sort of a typical Baptist church, you will have a solo pastor, you will have no elders, and then you'll have a bunch of deacons. And the problem is those deacons, instead of being deacons, they actually function almost like a quasi-elder board. And the point is that, that both of these views... And both of these practices, they are detrimental to the health of the church. And that is because according to Scripture, the local church is to have both elders and deacons. And we should say that those are the only two recognized offices, and you need to have both of them. And not only do you need to have both of them, you need to have both the elders and the deacons actually doing what God has called them to do. That is how we have a healthy church. You might think of it this way. If you want the meal to turn out right, you probably should follow the recipe. If you want the church to be healthy, then you need to have both elders and deacons. But just like last week when we looked at the elders, you'll quickly notice there are requirements for the deacons. That is to say, it's not just anybody. There is a particular life that a person needs to leave, uh, lead rather, if they are going to serve the church in this capacity. And so this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. What are the requirements for deacons? Paul begins in verse 8 by saying, Deacons likewise must be dignified. And now we're dignified there. It describes that which is worthy of respect or honor. It's talking about a person who is noble. Or maybe to go at it from a different direction, this is a person that does not treat serious or important matters as silly or flippant. And because they are dignified, because they take serious things seriously, their character is one that evokes respect and, and admiration. This is what it means to be dignified. Verse 8 continues, 
not double-tongued. In Greek, this is a compound word. The first word is the word for twice, and the second word means something said. So literally, not someone who says something twice. And, And the point here is that the deacon doesn't speak with a forked tongue. It's not this idea of gossip, but it's more the idea of their yes means yes, and their no means no. This, this is somebody that you can trust. They are reliable. They do what they say they are going to do. Moving on, deacons must not be addicted to much wine. And there's two reasons for this. The first is, quite simple, to be drunk is to be in sin, But second, and more to the point here, deacons are to be those who are clear-headed. He or she must exercise self-control. Part of the responsibility of deacons is that they make difficult decisions quite often about people and their needs and their finances. And so it's very important that the deacons be in their right state of mind. Speaking of finances, we are told at the end of verse 8 that the deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. We'll look more at this in a moment when we actually look at the role of the deacon. But suffice it to say, deacons often handle the finances of the church. And not only do they often handle the finances, but they do so quite often behind closed doors. They do so very discreetly. So it is absolutely imperative that the deacon not be greedy, but that, but that he actually be trustworthy. Let me think of this way. You don't, you don't have to worry about him like Judas pilfering the offering bag. And that is because it is absolute requirement that the deacon not have the talons of greed embedded in his flesh. Still thinking about the requirements for deacons, we are told in verse 9 that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And just to make sure that we're all on the same page, this idea of the, of the mystery of the faith, we're not talking here about something that is hidden or, or spooky. This isn't some idea that's sort of veiled in smoke. As Philip Ryken has put it, the gospel is not a theological whodunit. The, the truth is that this idea of the mystery of the faith, this is actually Paul's way of simply describing the gospel that has been fully and finally revealed in Jesus Christ. You, you have to recognize it, that under the old covenant, before Christ came, not everything was clearly defined. You could see, but to, use a, to, to adopt some language from 1 Corinthians 13, right? you, you, you saw through the glass dimly. You, you didn't quite have 20-20 vision. It wasn't until the wake of Christ in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. It, it, that is the, the mystery of the faith. That is the gospel. And the point is that it is known in Christ. And so the deacon then must know the faith and hold to the faith and be committed to the faith and live a life worthy of the faith. Which should very quickly dispel any notion 
about deacons just being nobodies in the church. Like I said, we'll speak in a few moments about what deacons do. We'll talk about their job. But here, in passing, we we should be able to say what their job isn't. Deacons are not building and property managers. Neither are they glorified janitors or sanctified groundskeepers. If that was the sum total of their work, then he or she wouldn't need necessarily to meet any qualifications, right? But, if deacons actually bring spiritual encouragement to the sick, if they assist the poor financially, if they labor to bring unity to the congregation, well, then it is absolutely imperative that they be grounded in the truth of the gospel. Maybe another way to say it would be this. We often think about deacons as sort of the hands and feet of the church. And and I think that's very well and good and right. But they're not just hands and feet. They are, in a lot of ways, mouths as well. And because they are mouths, they need to know the gospel. And if the deacons in the church don't know the gospel and aren't grounded in the gospel, then very quickly, you know what will happen to the deacons and that local church? it will simply become another social service in the community. That's all it will become. Another point that quickly dispels this idea of deacons being nothing more than glorified janitors is verse 10. Because we read, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so we, so we see here that, that deacons have to be tested. And that word from, for tested, it comes from the world of metallurgy. It was used to describe the scrutiny that was employed to test the genuineness of a particular metal. So when it comes to deacons and who becomes a deacon in the church, the point here is this is not a popularity contest. It's not, well, who does everybody like? Deacons have to be tested. They must meet certain qualifications. And not only must they meet those certain qualifications, I think based on how verse 10 talks, tested first, then let them serve, if they prove, right? There seems to be some sort of probationary period here. There needs to be an opportunity, time, space for the congregation to assess the character of these individuals, to evaluate their beliefs and their particular giftings, and to know if they are well-suited for this particular task. Which, again, should put to rest this idea that deacons are merely those who move chairs, change light bulbs, or paint walls. Another of the requirements is found in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. We spent a little bit of time last week looking at that phrase because it's used also of elders. And so I'm going to be very quick this morning and and just say that, that if you recall, this is best understood to refer to the deacon being a one woman man. It is the idea that the deacon is to be faithful to his wife. There's a purity about him and the relationship with her. He, He loves his wife. He's committed to his wife. He cherishes his wife. 
This is what it means to be a one-woman man. And then finally, we are told at the end of verse 12 that he must manage his children in his own household well. That is to say that the house of the deacon cannot be one of utter chaos. His address, it shouldn't be a constant source of disarray and disobedience where his, his wife is unwilling to submit and his children will not obey. No, the, the deacon's house needs to be in order. That, that's the flavor. Now, I will concede to you that is a, a way too quick overview of the requirements for deacons. But perhaps you notice that I conveniently skipped right over a certain verse. We went from verse 10 and deacons being tested to verse 12 in their home life. And some of you are wondering about verse 11, as you should. Well, just so that you know, church, verse 11 is one of those hotly debated passages among Christians. And I want you to know that it is hotly debated among good and faithful and godly Christians. The tent here is big enough for spirited disagreement. And trust me, there is spirited disagreement about how to understand verse 11. Generally speaking, verse 11 is understood in one of two ways. Either verse 11 is talking about the wives of deacons, or verse 11 is talking about women or female deacons, better said, deaconesses. So which is it? Are we talking about wives of deacons, or are we talking about female deacons? And since we have a deaconess, that gives you a pretty good idea of where we land on these things. But I, but I do want to spend just a couple of moments and, and try to lay out how it is that we land there. So, so bear with me. But before we do that, I do want to offer a very brief caveat. In my estimation, a church can only ordain a woman deacon or a deaconess if the deacons are truly deacons. In other words, if a church operates with the deacons essentially being elders, well, then you cannot have women deacons. And that's because if you recall, 1 Timothy 2.12 flatly prohibits a woman from teaching men or from a woman exercising authority over men. Or if I can go out from a slightly different direction, I'm happy to ordain women as deaconesses because I'm convinced the deacons are not, I repeat, not an authoritative body in the church. Deacons are not a ruling class. They're not a teaching class. Deacons are simply recognized servants. And I really do think that if we could keep that straight, then a lot of our other questions would sort of fall in line. Now, with that being said, What's the case for deaconesses? Let me give you four reasons. First, Scripture nowhere forbids deaconesses. This ties into what I was just saying about elders and about teaching and about authority. As long as we do not allow deaconesses, or deacons for that matter, to become pseudo-elders, then we do not have a prohibition against deaconesses like we do female elders in 1 Timothy 2.12. Second, verse 11 seems to refer to female deacons 
not deacons' wives. And there are several reasons in favor of this view. Keep your eyes on verse 11. I don't want to lose you. For starters, the first word that you have in verse 11, if you're reading the ESV anyway, ESV anyway, is the word there. That is not in the original Greek. The ESV has added that for clarification. That, that possessive pronoun there, it does not exist. That is significant. In a related vein, there is ambiguity surrounding the second word, the word wives. <clears throat> the actual word that Paul uses, it can mean wives or it can mean women, and context is what determines it. Throughout 1 Timothy, Paul uses this word in several instances. In some cases, it clearly refers to wives, and in other cases, it clearly refers to simply women. And it really does depend upon the context, how you translate it. Some English translations, like the ESV, render it wives. Other translations, like the NASB, for example, reads Women must likewise be dignified. They, they, have, they have not added the possessive pronoun there, because <clears throat> it's not in the Greek. The, the NSB tends to be a little more literal. They've eliminated it, and they translated wives as women. So the point is, this argument turns on more than just mere words, because the point is the word can mean wives or women. Perhaps you're beginning to see why this is so thorny. Another observation revolves around the structure of the passage. Verse 11 begins, Their wives, listen to this phrase, likewise must be dignified. Well, that phrase, it stands in exact parallel to verse 8. Verse 8 reads, Deacons likewise must be dignified. You see how it's exactly the same? And then in both verse 8 and verse 11, there are three additional qualifications that follow. In verse 8, you have not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So you have three qualifications. Verse 11, likewise must be dignified, and then it follows suit with three more additional qualifications. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so the structure seems to suggest that verse 8 and verse 11 <clears throat> are in parallel with one another. So that verse 8 is addressing deacons or male deacons, and verse 11, female deacons or deaconesses. That's one possibility. In addition, we have to answer the charge that verse 11 is some sort of interruption in Paul's thought. The argument goes like this. Why would Paul address deacons in verses 8 through 10, then jump to deaconesses in verse 11, and then right back to deacons in verse 12. That seems sort of wonky, doesn't it? Well, I think the short answer is this, and, and here I'm just going to borrow directly from Matt Smethurst. These are his words. Paul bookends the paragraph with general statements pertaining to all deacons, verses 8 through 10 and verse 13, inside of which he addresses with brief specificity both female deacons, verse 11, and male deacons, verse 12. Maybe think of it like this. 
If you zoom out and look at 1 Timothy 3 from 30,000 feet, this is, what you should, this is what you could see. Verses 1 through 7 are qualifications for elders. Then, in verses 8 through 10, general qualifications for deacons. Verse 11 is then specific qualifications for female deacons. Verse 12 is specific qualifications for male deacons. And then verse 13 is a summary statement again of deacons generally. That is one way to understand how, how all this fits together. Finally, as we're thinking about verse 11 and building a case for how it seems to refer to female deacons, I would invite you to consider if verse 11 didn't refer to female deacons. In other words, assume for a moment that it does in fact refer to the wives of deacons. If that is the case, why would Paul list qualifications for the deacons' wives, but none for the elders' wives? I think that's strange. But it's only strange if verse 11 refers to deacons' wives. If, on the other hand, verse 11 refers to deaconesses, then it seems to make perfect sense. Now, I mentioned four reasons why many understand this passage to address deaconesses. The first is that Scripture nowhere prohibits deaconesses. Second, there is reason to believe that verse 11 refers to deaconesses and not the wives of deacons. A third reason is that there seems to be an example of a deaconess in Scripture, and that is found in Romans 16. Romans 16.1 says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. Now, just like in 1 Timothy 3, wives and women is the same word, and it depends on the context how you translate it, so you should know servant and deacon is the same word in Greek, and it is the context that determines the meaning. Some will argue that Phoebe was merely a servant-hearted person, that she, she's not an official deaconess, and that's possible. That's entirely possible. But there's also possible to see a couple of reasons to conclude why she might be a deaconess. The fact that she is said to be of the church of Centria, it suggests some sort of official capacity. She's not just a servant, she's a deacon at this particular church. Furthermore, Romans 16.2 tells us that she was a patron, a patron indicating that she regularly supported, perhaps financially, those who are in need. And that would fit very well with what deacons and deaconesses do. So Scripture nowhere forbids deaconesses. Verse 11 seems to refer to female deacons. I think we have an example of a deaconess in Scripture. And then fourth and finally, we do see deaconesses in church history. Now granted, I do not mean to suggest that church history has been uniform on this front, and neither do I want to suggest that all that has taken place in church history is worthy of our emulation. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we do find deaconesses pretty early in the history of the church. For example, in the year A.D. 112, in a letter by Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan, we read these words. Accordingly, 
I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. So, the, so, so these are unbelievers in the year AD 112 trying to figure out what this whole Christian faith is about that is upending the Roman Empire. And so what they end up doing is they find a couple of deaconesses, they torture them, try to get them to give them information, and the Romans just simply conclude that they're depraved, these, these, are, these are just weirdos. But the point is that by the very beginning of the second century, AD 112, you've already got deaconesses. Now again, I'm not saying that proves the point, but I am saying that it leans in that direction. So, Speaking of leaning, it is true that good and godly men disagree. Not everyone is convinced for the case of deaconesses. And I would also add, given the fact that this is a secondary doctrine and it is relatively speaking unclear, what I am presenting before you this morning is not, I'm not doing so in an effort to be overly dogmatic or uncharitable. I'm just simply wanting some of you who have been around here for a long time, some of you who are new, I just want you to understand sort of how we've come to the place that we have come. It's all that I'm trying to get you to see. Assuming you are tracking with me, let's return to our passage, specifically verse 11, and let's see what these specific requirements are for the deaconess. She must be, verse 11, dignified. And you should know that's the same word up in verse 8. So this woman, she must be worthy of respect. She, she is to be admired by the congregation. She also mustn't be, verse 11, a slanderer. This, this woman, she is not one who tears down others with her words. She's not a malicious gossip that would utterly disqualify her for this work. Still in verse 11, she has to be sober-minded, that is to say, she, she's clear-headed, and, and she operates with, with good judgment. And at the end of verse 11, we are told that she must be faithful in all things. This doesn't mean that this woman is sinless, but it does mean that she is trustworthy, that she is dependable. You, you can count on her. When she says she's going to do something, you know that it's going to get done. But that does raise the question, doesn't it? What does she do? What does the deacon and the deaconess do? And that church gets us to the role of deacons. And speaking of their role, you're quickly going to notice in our passage that it is utterly silent with respect to what deacons do. In fact, there is scant evidence, if any, in all of 1 Timothy about the actual role of deacons. So what do we do? Where do we turn? Well, while acknowledging that local churches have a really long leash here, we shouldn't try to put other churches in straitjackets when it comes to the exact function of deacons, I do think that Scripture gives us some direction. So I would invite you to hold your finger in 1 Timothy 3 and turn over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I want to read to you a couple of verses from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read in your hearing the first four verses. We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days, 
When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose, arose rather against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the, day, in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, at this point, you might very well balk. And you might balk because you notice that 1 Timothy 3 explicitly mentions deacons, but not their work. And the passage that's in front of us now in Acts chapter 6, it mentions a lot of work, but doesn't mention anything about deacons. And that's true. At the same time, there is some overlap here. Uh, the, the word that's used for deacon, it's related noun, is used twice in Acts 6, once in verse 1 and once in verse 4. And the verbal form of the noun is used in verse 2. And so many, including myself, we see what is in front of us as, as sort of the office of deacons in its embryonic form. This is sort of its infancy, if you will. And therefore, I think that Acts 6 does give us some practical, hands-on, rubber-meets-the-road direction when it comes to the role of the deacons. Let me give you three. First, deacons meet tangible needs within the church. Deacons meet tangible needs within the church. What's, what's the situation in Acts chapter 6? Well, there was a group of widows who were being neglected, and they were specifically being neglected when it came to the food that they needed. And so, who comes to the rescue? Well, it would appear that these deacons do, which means that the role of the deacon is one, please hear this, it is one of compassion and charity. The deacon or the deaconess, they will have their eyes open, watching out for the sick, watching out for the needy, watching out for the elderly, making sure that those in this congregation who can most easily slip through the cracks won't, and to make sure that they are extended the Christian care that they need. And you'll notice the accent here in Acts 6, it is a physical, tangible care. What the deacons do, you can put it on a scale. You can measure it. You, you can touch it. Second, deacons promote unity among the church. Unity among the church. Back to the situation in Acts 6. It seems the neglect of the widows was owing to some sort of ethnic issue. The church in Jerusalem, no doubt predominantly Jewish, was good at taking care of its Jewish widows, right? But the Hellenists, that is to say the Greek-speaking widows, they, at least in their estimation, were being shortchanged. And so the office of deacon is born. And it was born... Notice, to bridge the gap and to foster unity among the Jewish and Greek-speaking in their congregation. And so that's what deacons do. As it has been said, deacons are like shock absorbers. They, they are those who cross the aisle. They, they seek to promote unity within the church. And the third, the third and final role of the deacons is this. Deacons support the elders of the church. They support the elders of the church. 
Notice in Acts chapter 6, when this scenario arises regarding the widows, that the apostles do not immediately drop everything and throw all of their time and all of their energy at trying to resolve this whole thing. Instead, they say, perhaps shockingly, in verse 2, it is not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Why? Well, because their ministry is one, verse 4, of devotion to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And while we do not have apostles today, certainly the elders follow in their footsteps, at least with respect to this idea of men in the church being of prayer and preaching. But mark my words, none of this means that the neglected widows of Acts chapter 6 were unimportant. Nor does it mean that the deacons are somehow second-class citizens because they are called to support the elders. That's not it at all. It simply means that there is a healthy division of labor that exists between elders and deacons. Elders are chiefly concerned with the ministry of prayer and word and sacrament. I sort of hate to use this language, but, but the spiritual stuff, if I can put it that way. And the deacons, they are chiefly concerned with meeting the needs of the people, the the physical stuff, if I can put it that way. And so, in Acts chapter 6, deacons do their job so the elders can do theirs, right? The deacons exist on one level to make sure that the elders can do what God has called the elders to do. So, beloved, I don't intend those to be something of a straitjacket, but I do hope that there's some like kind of guardrails to give us direction. This is the role of the deacons and deaconesses in this congregation. They are to meet the tangible needs in the church. They are to promote unity among the church, and they are so to, and they are to support the elders of the church. That's their that's their their role. That's their job. And I want you to know that it is a job that comes with a reward. Service for Christ always brings blessing. It always brings rewards. And there's nothing different about that here. Turning your Bibles back to 1 Timothy 3. You can let go of Acts 6. Put your eyes on 1 Timothy 3.13. After seeing the reality, the requirements, and the role of deacons, now look at their reward. We're told in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So church, don't miss this. There are two rewards here. One is before the congregation and one is before God. In terms of the reward before the congregation, notice what our passage says. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. And and in the context, that means that that faithful deacons will acquire an excellent standing in the church so that the congregation will look at the deacons, will, will look at them and hold them in high regard and praise God for them and for their service. And that is all good and right and beautiful. That is their reward, church. We will look at deacons and we will thank God for our deacons. But that's not all. 
In terms of the reward before God, notice how our passage continues. Because verse 13 says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence or assurance in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it seems that what Scripture is getting at here is that as the deacons and the deaconesses faithfully serve in the church, that that same service will increase their Christian confidence. Right? They'll step back and they will see God at work in them and through them and their faith will, will deepen and grow as a result. Think about this. As the deacons and deaconesses serve Christ and Christ's church, their, their own relationship with Christ will be strengthened. It's quite the reward. Beloved, if nothing else, I, I would pray that this morning you see how important deacons and deaconesses are to the life and to the health of a local church. This is not an overstatement. Their ministry is vital because, as we've already said, in a very real sense, they are the hands and the feet of the congregation. Perhaps most profoundly, though, deacons and deaconesses, they point us to the deacon. In other words, they point us to Christ, who is the ultimate deacon Think about it with me this way. What did Christ do but humble himself by coming to us? He did this by, by taking to himself human flesh, and he did so entering into our world to do what? To meet our greatest need. And as a man, he perfectly served and obeyed his Father. Christ loved him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Christ loved his neighbor as himself. How else would you describe the whole life of Christ but a life of utter service? And this life of utter service, it culminated on the cross where Christ willingly and gladly gave up his life for us. And lest you think I'm reading too much into this, remember what our Lord himself said. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? Literally to deacon, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Christ, he is the deacon par excellence. And he has served us, brothers and sisters, by dying our death for sin. He served us by becoming our substitute on that cross, taking away the wrath of God that, would, that was owed us for our sin, and then giving us his righteousness. Three days later, he got up from the dead, and in getting up from the dead, he has declared victory over sin and over death and over hell. And as he makes this declaration, he offers each and every one of us a promise. And here's the promise. You too will overcome sin and death and hell. 
If you are resting in Christ, if you are trusting in Him and Him alone for your standing before God, then that promise is for you. And if all of that wasn't enough, our great deacon, he then sends us his spirit to indwell us and to encourage us and to be with us forever and to strengthen us and to preserve us even as we imperfectly walk with him each and every day. You see, this is what makes deacons such a vital part of a local church. Because by their calling and their service, and their humility, and their laying down their lives, and their work, in all of this, they are actually pointing us to Christ. They are modeling for us what it looks like to serve. In a very weighty way, the deacons and the deaconesses, they are pointing us to the great deacon who has served us so faithfully by his gospel. Let's go to God in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in him we live and move and have our being. We are thankful that you give to all mankind life and breath and everything. And we are thankful that you've opened our eyes to see our sin and to see the utter beauty of Christ, to see that he has truly served us. We sit here this morning, we come together and worship this morning, not seeking to curry favor in your sight, but resting in the utter sufficiency of Christ who has perfectly served us and brought us into your presence. Lord, we thank you. And we would pray for our deacons. We pray for Joe and Mike and Emily. We pray that as they continue to serve this congregation, that they would do so not out of a a sense of complete duty, but also of delight. And we pray that you would be in the business of moving by your spirit in the life of this congregation and raising up other men and women who would serve in this capacity. Father, we also pray for those in this congregation who are sick, who are needy, who are elderly. Lord, we know that those are the ones who are most vulnerable. They are the ones that quickly fall through the cracks. Lord, we pray that this church and that the deacons in particular would be a safety net, a gospel net to grab them and love them and encourage them and serve them. And we pray that as we do all of this, that Christ would be exalted in our midst. We pray these things in his name. Amen.